All right, those of you that have been gone, maybe coming back, those of you still gone, we're still going through Ecclesiastes. We are plowing through it. We are at chapter 3 right now. Um, Lana is a 19-year-old Egyptian girl. She was raised in a devout Muslim home. She was taught to despise Christianity. One day, a friend from school invited her to listen to a radio program that spoke about Jesus and his salvation. The more she listened, the more she wanted to hear. The more she listened, the more she began to doubt that Jesus was simply a human messenger, as she had been taught. So afterwards, she started reading the Bible. She had to hear more, and as she read the Bible, Jesus became real to her and became her real Savior and her real friend. When her family found out, her dad beat her. Her mother banned her from all family meals. Uh, eventually, her parents declared her dead, threw her out of the house, uh, and it didn't stop there. Her own mom and dad had her kidnapped and then beaten and left for dead because she was unconscious from the beating. Why, um, why does God allow that? Why does God allow evil like that to happen? Why does God allow the poor to get poorer, widows and orphans to be abused, uh, disease and freak accidents to take loved ones away? Why does God allow unjust laws, epidemic greed, failing schools, laws enforced unequally, corrupt legal and political leaders. Why does God allow suffering, R racism, rape, serial killers, genocide, sex trafficking, street children, terrorism? Why does God allow these things? We have come to the darkest hole in the cave of vanity. We've come to the darkest pit in all the Bible. The problem of evil. The problem of death. So this is, this is a dark topic. But those of you that have been with us in Ecclesiastes, you know he's not... He's not pulling any punches. He's not holding anything back. He's asking all the questions, and he's asking us to go, not just to the questions, to go far enough with the questions. He's saying, listen, you ask questions in life. We all ask questions in life, but we've got to go farther with them. We've got to go to the root of them. We've got to push beyond the weeds and grab the roots and find out why it's there. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at the problem of evil and death today. Our reading this morning is Ecclesiastes 3.16 through 4.3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath 
and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your speaking is your active personal presence. And so this morning, um, we trust you to be personally, actively present in our lives through your word. Uh, but we do want to acknowledge this is a hard passage. And we thank you because you have these passages there for us. And all of it is there not to hurt us, but to help us and heal us. So this morning, Lord, would you help? Would you heal? And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so Peter Van Inwagen, that's a great name, huh? In his lecture called The Problem of Evil, tells a true story about a woman. And this is a little graphic, so I apologize ahead of time, but I think it proves the point. Of a woman assaulted by a man. The man not only raped her, but then the man chopped off her arms at the elbows and then left her for dead. Somehow she crawls to the street, is rescued, and she survives. But now she lives her life without arms and with the horror of the night she experienced. The problem, he says, of evil is a big deal. The problem of evil is, that this is what it does. It turns our stomachs first before it produces arguments or propositions in our head. Most of us want to argue the problem of evil. Most of us want to debate the problem of evil. But what the, what the Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is going to do, he wants it to turn your stomach. Evil first turns the stomach before it ever turns to an argument in your head. Look at 4.1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And in the original language, that's an exclamation point. No one to comfort them. He looks and he sees all the suffering, the injustices and the evil of the world. And he sees it and sees the tears and he sees no comfort. And he goes on the side of the oppressors, those afflicting the injustice and the evil. There was power. And there was no one to comfort them because of their power. Ryu and Taru wrestle with the problem of evil in Camus' The Plague. So Ryu says, since the order of the world is shaped by death, mightn't it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes toward the heaven where he sits in silence? And Taru nods and says, yes, but your victories will never be lasting. That's all. Ryu's face darkened. Yes, I know that, but it's no reason for giving up the struggle. 
And Taru responds, no reason I agree. Only I now can picture what this plague must mean for you. A never-ending defeat. The problem of death is a big deal. It is a never-ending defeat. And there is absolutely nothing that anyone in the history of the world can do about it. 319, the preacher says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. For some, the problem of evil and death drives them away from God. One theologian writes, evil can make God implausible. Evil can make God unreal to a human heart, he writes. Eli Wiesel, in his famous book, probably everybody here has read it or you had to have read it in school, Night, tells how the furnaces at the Nazi death camp turned human beings into wreaths of smoke. And he says, he describes how the fires of those furnaces not only devastated him, but destroyed his belief in God, caused him to walk away from God. Here's what he says. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. For others, the problem of evil and death drives them toward God. For some, it drives them away. For others, it drives them toward. J. Christian Becker is a former professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He tells how his experiences at a Nazi death camp and the sights of the horrendous evil and suffering that he saw and then his eventual escape and then being on the run in constant hiding and constant fear drove him to Jesus and his salvation and drove him to be a Christian theologian where he writes this book, Suffering and Hope, The Biblical Vision and the Human Predicament. Andrea Palpit Daly was a missionary kid in Kenya. And as a missionary kid, she was exposed to more evil, more death, more darkness than most, most children in Western countries. So by the time she was a teenager, she began to question and doubt God's goodness. By the time she was in her 20s, she completely rejected Christianity altogether. But years later, she eventually came back to Jesus. Why? Now, this is what she says. When people ask me what drove me out the doors of the church and then what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. I left the church in part because I was mad at God about human suffering and injustice. I came back to the church because of that same struggle. I realized that I couldn't even talk about justice without standing inside a God framework. In a naturalistic worldview, a parentless orphan in the slums of Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. We're all just animals slumming it in a godless world, fighting for space and resources. The idea of justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God, end quote. The problem of evil and death only exists 
because a good God made a good world. Outside a good God making a good world, there is no problem with evil and death. There's only slumming it in a godless society as we fight for whatever space and resources are left. Outside a good God making a good world, everything is meaningless. There's no such thing as is evil and injustice. So the mere fact that we have a problem with evil and death proves the existence of a good God who made a good world. You should have a problem. I should have a problem with evil and death. There is only a problem with evil and death because there's a good world made by a good God. This is why the preacher has such a problem with it. This is why we do. When Dr. Martin Luther King was in Birmingham jail because of racial evil and injustice, he writes a letter and he says, if there is no higher divine law that defines what justice is, there's no way to tell what particular human experience and what particular human behavior is just or not. Nietzsche when he heard about a natural disaster that destroyed Java, an island in Indonesia, he wrote in 1883, 200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. Keller, responding to that, wrote, Nietzsche was relentless in his logic. He, he, he kept to his logic, right? He wrote, because there is, he said, no God, all value judgments are arbitrary. All definitions of justice are just the results of your culture or your temperament. Every human being should have a problem with evil and death. Because a good God made a good world. So why doesn't God do something about it? I think that's our problem, right? Why doesn't God do something about it? The preacher in the whole Bible says he does. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. So in other words, the preacher is saying, and the Bible says throughout all the scriptures, God will set things right. God will end all evil and injustice and suffering. God will heal all things. Everything sad will come untrue. So there is a time for justice according to Ecclesiastes and according to the Bible. God does not overlook evil and injustice. He's not indifferent to evil and injustice. He hates evil and injustice. He hates it. He destroys it. He heals it. Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible calls that time final judgment. Gandalf and the hobbits and the elves in Middle-earth, they call it uh, at the end of all things, that time at the end of all things. So why does God wait? Why is there a delay? I mean, everything inside us, when we see evil and justice that we see, on, whether it's on the TV or we know people, or we scream for justice. Everything inside us calls out for it. So why is there a delay? 
Why does God wait to destroy evil and heal everything? Why? Well, verse 17, he tells us there is a time for justice. So there is a time coming. Verse 18 gives us one reason why he delays. Now, for God, there might be five reasons. There might be 10 reasons. There might be 20. There might be three. But right here in this passage, he wants you and me to know one reason. There's one reason he wants you to know about. There might be lots of reasons that he's like, you're never going to know about. Those belong to me. Those belong to the intra-Trinitarian communion and communication. That belongs to the realities of the deepest secrets and counsel of God himself. And he says, you're never going to know those reasons. But this reason, I want you to know. I want you to know one reason why I delay. I want you to know one reason why I don't destroy evil on the spot and heal everything on the spot right now. And that's in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. According to Ecclesiastes, God is delaying the time of justice so that you and I see I'm a beast. The Apostle Paul, if he was here in the New Testament, they would write it this way. They'd say, so we would see that there is no one righteous, no one just, no one not evil, no one, not one. This is why there's verse 16. When you look at verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in that place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to the best places in the world. I'm going to the best places on the planet. I'm going to the most holy places. I'm going to the most just places. I'm going to the most righteous places, and I still can't find it. It's not there, he says. So everyone, the preacher is saying, is messed up. Everyone is a beast. Everyone is evil. Everyone is unrighteous. And God wants all of us to see that. Do you see that? He's saying in this text, he wants you and he wants me to see I am a beast. I am am an animal. Why? Because God loves beasts. Because God loves animals. Jesus says when he came in, when he came in his ministry, he used to go around and he'd say, listen, listen, if you don't know that you're spiritually sick, it blocks you. It, become, it blocks out you from seeing that I'm your spiritual healer. He says, if you don't know that you're broken, if you don't know that you're an animal, if you don't know that you're a beast, it blocks out my help. It blocks out you from seeing that I'm your savior. It blocks out and keeps you trusting in yourself. It keeps you hoping in yourself. It keeps you trying to generate your own meaning and trying to find your own happiness. It blocks out me. The most loving, the most compassionate, the most gracious thing God can do 
to help you and me is to show us that we need him. To show us that his savior is the savior of beasts. Luther says it this way, and we're going to look at it next week on our confession. Thesis 18 of the Heidelberg Disputation. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he's prepared to receive the grace of God. Remember we said that Ecclesiastes gives you an understanding of yourself so that you have a deeper understanding of the grace of God. Those two always go together. The degree to which you have a proper understanding of yourself is the degree to which you actually experience the grace of God. The degree to which you have a proper experience of the world that's out there that's fallen and wrecked is the degree to which you actually experience the grace of God in your life. It is so important for you and I to experience the grace of God that God is committed to helping you see that we need it. And that he will move your situations and your circumstances to continue to put cracks and fissures in your illusion and my illusion of strength. And he will bring relationships and he will reveal you to you so that you need him. So that his power, Paul would say, can be made perfect in your weakness. He is so committed to you being weak because he wants you to be strong in him alone. In fact, Paul says, listen, he talks to the church of Corinthians, he says, listen, God's weakness is stronger than your best strength. Paul Walker in Mockingbird Devotional says it this way, simply put, it is our weakness that allows us to be with God. Period. What's the qualification for being a Christian? Need. What's the qualification of all spiritual virtue and all spiritual growth in the Christian life? Need. Luther said it this way, you come to God with empty hands that he now fills. But when you come with stuff in your hands, He's going to be busy knocking it out until they're empty. So those who see themselves as beasts, you know what happens? You start seeing the Savior. You start resting in the Savior. You start relying upon the Savior. You start rejoicing in the Savior. You start finding strength in the Savior. In fact, all the a hall of faith, you know what it says about them at the end of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? This whole list of guys that we look at and we're like, wow, incredible men and women of God. You know what it says? Through weakness, they were made strong. Every single one of them. That summarizes their spiritual life. And so right here in Ecclesiastes, why does God delay justice? Why doesn't he destroy it now? Why doesn't he heal everything now? His delay is for only one reason. His grace. It's because of beasts like you and me that he delays. Ancient church fathers, a guy named Olympiodorus, he wrote in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, so this is back in probably the 300s, 400s, 
uh, he wrote on Ecclesiastes, on this passage, and he said that the preacher is instructing us through enigmas, and that means he's instructing us through contradictions. He's instructing us through paradoxes. He's instructing us through mysteries. Ecclesiastes, he says, guides us to the other life. And you got to ask, well, what's the other life? So then when Philip Ryken studied this passage and wrote a commentary on it, he used to be the, the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he came across uh, Olympia Doris's uh, commentary instructing us through contradictions and mysteries, and he says, that's right. And so the question is how? And he says this, he says, in verse 21 and 22, there are questions. There are questions that the preacher asks that appear like the preacher doesn't know the answer to. But he's asking questions that the rest of the Bible will eventually answer. Who knows, verse 21 says. Who can bring this about, verse 22 says. And Riken says, anyone who wants to know what will happen after death should ask Jesus because he's been to the other side. When Jesus was brought to the place of justice, there was no justice for him. There was no one to speak in his defense, no one to rescue him from the deadly cross, and no one to comfort him in his tears. In other words, Jesus becomes, verse 1 of chapter 4, he becomes the oppressed that the preacher laments about. He becomes the oppressed that is broken and beaten with tears and no one comforts him. He was laid in the dust of death, but Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again. This is why we can be absolutely certain of eternal life. It is because Jesus brought life out of death. Jesus is the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. How? Because God himself is not a spectator of evil and injustice and pain and suffering. God himself became the ultimate victim of it. The ultimate victim of evil. The ultimate victim of injustice. The ultimate suffering. Also, he not only became the ultimate victor, God himself, victim of it, he took on himself all the beastliness and animalness and evil and injustice of you and me upon himself on the whole planet so that we wouldn't. So he could heal all things. Samuel Wilkerson is a, was a war correspondent during the Civil War, and he wrote for the New York Times, and he was at the Battle of Gettysburg, which was the largest battle fought on North American soil. The last great battle of the Civil War, some 51,000 died. Just to kind of put this in perspective, uh, the total number of American deaths in the Vietnam War from 1967 to 1975 was 58. So in one battle, 51,000 died. Uh, surveying the, the carnage, Wilkerson finds the body of his own son who was fighting for the Union side. And overwhelmed by grief and kneeling beside his son, he writes an article for the New York Times on that battle, and this is what he says. Oh, you dead who at Gettysburg have baptized with your blood 
the second birth of freedom in America. How you are to be envied. I rise from a grave whose set clay I have passionately kissed, and I look up and see Christ spanning this battlefield with his feet and reaching fraternally and lovingly up to heaven. His right hand opens the gates of paradise. With his left, he beckons those mutilated, bloody, swollen forms to ascend. Jesus' death is not only the ultimate answer to the problem of evil, his resurrection is the ultimate hope to anyone and all who suffer, who experience evil and are ravaged by injustice. Why? Because evil and death do not win. The resurrection says Jesus does. The resurrection says death is destroyed. The resurrection says evil has an end game. The resurrection says one day everything will be healed. One day all things will be made new. Healing does come. One day every sad thing comes untrue. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for a tough 